Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. In today's episode, we talked with Paul Keckley, the managing editor of the Keckley Report and a health policy expert. Paul and Julie Yu, general partner at A16Z Bio and Health, discussed how payers and providers are reacting to changing tailwinds post-pandemic, the opportunities and challenges for startups in a consolidated industry, and how the 118th Congress might influence the next few years of health policy. Let's get started. One place I wanted to start, Paul, was, you know, you have written in depth about so many of the highly consequential policies and regulations that have transpired in the last several years. What are your greatest hits of policies that you would highlight that have had either the biggest successes or the biggest failures in terms of catalyzing shifts in the private sector of the industry? Wow. Uh, You just aged me. (laughs) Two that come to mind immediately are the reset and March of 2010 with the Affordable Care Act and what led to that and what that signified and then what's happened since. So, you know, it was set up to be a mechanism for reducing costs over a decade while insuring everyone and improving quality. But then what quickly happened is it defaulted to, this is really about insurance coverage. So there were seven major sections of the Affordable Care Act that introduced things like medical homes and uh, the Medicare Shared Savings Program or avoidable readmissions or things like that. So you'd grade that part of the law as incomplete. It was structured as a bunch of five-year pilot programs, and to date there have been 54 of those. And if you look at it objectively, only a half dozen have had any kind of long-term systemic sustainability, and those even still need repair, like the ACO model and how it's measured or how savings are uh, calculated and so on. So that's kind of part A of that. Part part B of the law, uh, improving quality, got no attention. Well, there's a, a specification that we'd have a national quality strategy, and HHS and the secretary would present that every year, and it's going to really address things that have become very topical, like social determinants. Well, you haven't seen much about that national quality strategy since. So we lack a national quality strategy. We still have a very fragmented sectarian system, and it has failed to come to some consensus about what would quality actually mean in our system. So that's kind of part two. And Part three, the coverage for everyone, what it did is cover a few more. It cut the uninsured uh, from 16% to we got it down to about 8.5%. So we've cut back on some of those that are uninsured, but we've not addressed insurance coverage per se because what's uh, not really clarified is increasingly Having insurance, health insurance, does not mean that there's financial security along with that because the ability to 
use narrow networks or high deductible products is where we are. So, you know, after all that work and all that discussion and all that question of affordability and transparency and value-based incentives and this and that, uh, we haven't slowed down the growth of healthcare. A lot of reasons for that. The most obvious is unit cost. What we're spending for a day in a hospital, what we spend for a drug, escapes economic logic. So that's my number one and series of things that followed. Yeah, maybe keying off of that and the point about unit cost on the provider side of the market, you know, we've spent a lot of time with health system and hospital executives yep. in the last few months. And the dominant theme is that everybody is in recovery mode right now, just given that they've all been slammed pretty hard this year, you know, due to wage increases, inflation in general, supply chain woes, et cetera, and, and volume shifting to all sites of care outside of the traditional acute care setting. And you wrote about this concept of kind of the plan A versus the plan B that you've seen hospitals take. So the plan A is status quo, where, you know, you try to cut costs, raise prices, blame the government and blame insurance companies uh, and keep doing the same thing over and over again versus a plan B where you would sort of fundamentally shift your services mix and uh, compete on, on price and value, essentially. Are there examples that you would call out of hospitals successfully accomplishing that sort of plan B version of this? Those that have transitioned were managing population health risk uh, clinically and financially prior to the pandemic and after the Affordable Care Act. We have about 130 health systems right now that sponsor their own insurance programs. And that's an advantage. It gives you the opportunity to actually have a mechanism for funding investments in uh, population health or food as medicine or transportation or adequate housing or things like that. And it gives you rewards for keeping people out of hospitals, which is the most expensive place to get any kind of health care you need. So, yeah, we've got about 130 systems out there that are in the process but ahead of the rest of the pack uh, in moving to a system of health in which their acute services are simply a cost center as part of something else. And the ones that are advantaged most are those in markets where they're the number one or number two system in terms of scale and scope. It's a market that's large enough, meaning at least half a million or more, where you can manage the enterprise value by managing completely 150,000 lives instead of piecemeal work where people show up in a clinic, show up in ED. It's a different economic model. Uh, And third, it's one in which the physician organization, the professional services organization, is the key to the bottom line, not the admissions office. And that's a hard change for a lot of systems, especially where the boards are still dominated by the inpatient view. You mentioned the sort of vertically integrated pay biter, you know, type orientation as one of the ways by which hospitals can diversify their revenue and their margin streams to get to a, a, a different version of a promised land. And, and what you're describing, is that the only way by which you feel hospitals could successfully take risk is by owning that risk themselves? Or do you see a path towards a universe where a broad swath of hospitals are participating in risk, but not necessarily having to take on 
the um, form factor of an actual insurance product. If I think there are two other strategies. So the payvider is still high risk. It does require capital and an infrastructure and some disruption of your physician relationships to make that actually work. And when you're setting premiums, you've got to create competitive premiums. You, you, that means you're going to pay doctors and hospitals in the system less. The second would be, can you operate as if an investor-owned organization where you're going in the door with a low-price cadre of uh, facility-based services, uh, which means you extend the useful life of the capital. Uh, we're accustomed in this country to having you know, average age of plant that's under 10 years, and we're accustomed to do bricks and sticks. It means you purposely are extending the useful life of your technologies and your bricks and sticks longer. Average age of plan goes up. You're extending the usefulness of those bricks and sticks to extended hours for the operating room and the ancillary service provider. So it's a it's an operating model intent on being a low price facility based service provider. That's an option especially if you're not a number one or a number two in the market and you just need a place to play. And a third would be uh, the carve-out world in which you're going to uh, essentially say we're not all things to all people. That's uh, also risky because uh, you have to create some very strong DD relationships with certain employers, and you have to really carve out certain programs uh, at the expense of others. That's basically the three you've got, and you have to pick, uh, and you look around a room in a hospital boardroom, most of them don't have much experience with any of those three, uh, because we've kind of operated a, a model in which the hospital was the sun, and the moon were ancillary services, and the doctors were kind of in that constellation somewhere doing their thing, and this says, step back, let's rethink how we allocate our capital how we put people in the C-suite, uh, what competencies, and can we sustain some of the bets we were making? So that's kind of where we are. We're in no man's land. So that sort of covers one end of the stick, which is what providers can be doing to get us to a better place in terms of efficiency of the overall system. The other end of the stick is really payers, right? Because at the end of the day, it's generally the payment models that are the kind of the tail that wag the dog and so much of overseeing with regards to, to risk and whatnot. Yeah, so the tail that wagged the dog pre-pandemic was Medicare. That's the case for basically the way the world of healthcare has evolved. What came as a result of the pandemic was a reset on the minds of the employers, uh, especially the large self-insured employers, who said maybe the mix of benefits and services we need for our workforce is not a copycat to what CMS is doing with Medicare. So a big shift has been employers beginning to innovate and in some ways disrupt the way we think of insurance. I think we're going to see more and more of the bigger employers uh, crafting approaches to managing their workforce population and rethinking and recalculating how they uh, appropriate dollars to benefits. And here's where it gets a little tricky. It varies by industry. What uh, my research shows is 
It's a big difference in the way government, education, and healthcare industries think about health benefits and the way organizations in banking or technology think, or those industries that have said, we're really not so sure we have to get in the middle of this at all. That would be uh, light manufacturing, transportation, restaurants, hospitality, things like that. So if you look at the BLS data, you look at the spectrum of industries, and then underneath each of those industries, what's evolving is a view of how benefits for these workforces need to be constructed for the purpose of minimizing our cost exposure, maximizing their direct involvement in the care they buy, and the uh, analog that sometimes referenced is it's you know moving to this kind of defined uh, contribution model. We're going to basically give you some resources, but it's up to you, and we'll only participate in a certain level. And that's that's was underway pre-pandemic among some of the large self-insured, but now what's happened is the, the self-insured market is now a market of as few as 200 employees, and the uh, rule of scale still applies. You cannot leverage the power of purchasing as an employer if you're one employer of 200 or 2,000 or 20,000. You have to have a dominance in a region alongside uh, two or three other major employers. And here's where this has evolved. Uh, we used to have about 115 business health coalitions around the country. They used to share some information and have nice meetings to now they are sharing data and carving up the provider market to benefit those business communities where these activist coalitions are evolving. You'll begin seeing that around the country where three to five major employers in a top 100 metro are saying, we're not going to pay for health care the way it's been delivered in the past. You're not hearing Medicare has pushed them toward an ACO, so we need to get on board with the ACO. They're basically laying down a gauntlet and saying, you figure out how you're going to do it. We just know what our unit cost and our total cost of care should be. And we've got reference pricing and hard data to prove what it would cost us 200 miles from here versus next door. And that's a shift, man. That's a big deal. Right. So they're sort of using network design as the lever to drive that efficiency. They do network design, they do uh, benefit design, even uh, gatekeeping mechanisms, like you have to have checked uh, relative prices for this elective procedure, whether it's a joint replacement or it's a mammogram, you need to have logged on or your, your unique identifier and looked at the available services and what those costs are in this market, because we're going to participate at this level and anything above that, it's up to you. So there's a lot of really neat things that employers are doing that Medicare does not do. Medicare doesn't presume still that uh, people are more than patients. They're just kind of passive and they're just going to be going along to get along. Employers in certain industries are saying, that's a bunch of crap. That's the problem. And actually, on, on the point of Medicare, obviously, Medicare Advantage has been sort of the poster child of 
value-based care implementation. However, this year, uh, certainly it's seen a lot of negative coverage of um, various issues related to the program. To your point earlier, though, I mean, how much of that do you view as, you know, short-term view on a, a type of initiative that really takes multiple decades to play out versus there being sort of fundamental issues with the way that the program itself is constructed? I'm curious to hear your take sort of a couple of decades into the MA experiment and what needs to be true for that to continue to proliferate going forward? Since 2003, Medicare Advantage has been kind of institutionalized as part of Medicare. Uh, and then it took off uh, the past seven years with Humana and United kind of leading the pack. I think we're sitting north of 50% of the Medicare enrollment now in an MA plan. But what we found out is uh, that's because we, during open enrollment, we over-advertise and over-promise and over-everything because this is the answer. But the Medicare Advantage population has tended to be uh, slightly less educated, uh, lower income quartiles, and sometimes they don't get what they expect. But once in a Medicare Advantage plan, most people don't leave. And the net cost per enrollee on a severity-adjusted basis has been about the same, even though we paid higher to the Medicare Advantage plans than we were paying to hospitals and doctors for treating Medicare fee-for-service. So we're going through that adjustment period. We've known this now for at least the past uh, four years with some of the MedPAC data coming out. So the big two changes will be the new methodology for risk adjustment to avoid upcoding and getting healthier people and then scoring them so you get a, a rebate. Uh, and the second is going to be the ability or willingness to let the Medicare enrollee themselves uh, participate in this shared risk. Can they actually participate in it and see it? Because the way insurers have handled shared risk is that they've said, because we're effective at sharing risk with providers, it means what we charge you next year for your premium will be lower than had we not been so good. Those claims data are not readily accessible to the individual enrollee. So the more interesting fintech-type players now in the space are meta-tagging data at a very granular level so that an individual can have a pretty good sense of their projected risk and what that spin should be for that kind of risk, which would enable clever manipulators with some great actuaries to say, I can guarantee you next year your customized insurance plan is going to cost you only 2% more, lower that inflation. Because here's the profile. If you continue to do it this way, this way, and this way, and it'll be on your smartwatch, you'll know every minute of the day what that looks like. A few are on that path. What we're finding out with some of the uh, missteps and some of the miscues is this is expensive. We're going to go through uh, alpha, beta, and beyond before we figure that model out. And we're going to burn through a lot of money, which means in all likelihood the large cap players uh, in the health insurance industry will have an advantage that the 
you know, small guys don't. And and you're kind of seeing that trial and error play out with Bright Health and Oscar and all these other folks. So the sector, health insurance, has the wind at its back, more so than the provider community, because they have data and they've got a weapon, which is revenue. When that dollar comes in, they can pay it out as they choose. And policymakers, uh, whether it's state departments of insurance that kind of oversee their traditional books of business, or federal regulators that are trying to kind of map out these macro issues, are still playing catch up to where the health insurance folks are. They've already done the scenario plan for uh, version two, three, and four or total uh, cost of care analyses, or could we reference price this set of 30 things and bundle that just for high expense, inpatient, high acuity conditions and say to an employer, simply the defined contribution, let the employee spend the rest of it as they choose, whether it's food as medicine, or they need their primary care doctor on a speed dial. So that's a big world. That's a big sea change. And what I what I find is hospitals uh, and their doctors, they got a false sense of security when they thought employing the doctors is going to be our defense mechanism. The result of that has been higher overhead, uh, more administrative headache with the doctors. And where it's going to come home is the doctors that are employed expect to be paid uh, as well, if not better, than they were paid before, regardless of whether independent or hospital employed. So the hospital is going to see their doctor agreements disintegrate, and a lot of opportunities will present themselves to docs. It's very interesting to see, you know, as we're seeing this play out, whether it's a SPAC, which has some baggage attached, or some of the new uh, private equity and VC-backed deals, they speak to this notion of doctors don't have to be second fiddle to anything. Exactly. You, you can actually be the centerpiece of a system of health. Yeah. I mean, you, you just pointed out a number of tailwinds and just company building opportunities, whether it be on the provider side and sort of the independent provider model becoming the next normal, whether it be on the uh, Medicare Advantage side, whether it be on the commercial side. Yeah. But you also pointed out the fact that startups are always on their heels with regard to the resources that they have at their disposal and the leverage that they have relative to the incumbents. As we spend time with policymakers in particular, um, who have all stated that they would like to engage more with the innovation ecosystem, oftentimes they also say in the same breath that their statutory mandates are sometimes at odds with, with that desire to influence more of what's happening on the ground with upstarts. Where does that leave the private sector founders? What are some of the things that that they should be thinking about to practically influence policy decisions and you know have a seat at the table as these dynamics play out? Well, capital is key. So we we used to think that a five billion dollar enterprise, a system that had that kind of critical mass, was big enough to do just about everything. That's not even close to the case. We probably have to create enterprises that have value of north of $50 billion to compete at scale in the future of the health system, assuming that those are going to be integrated systems of health against the likes of which a United at $400 billion or 
others are going to also be playing. In 24, we probably have a discussion about a national health program, Medicare for All, or whatever you have. That won't happen. People still like a private system, all that good stuff. But how do you make a private system affordable, accessible, equitable, and reduce what we spend on it? And I don't think that's going to come from the uh, people that have lived in this for 30 years. I think it's going to come from folks that come with a holding view of this. Love it. Last question here would be, Paul, as we look into 2023, what are some of the predictions that you would make about healthcare policy that may or may not play out? Because I know you've also spoken about how politics is the enemy of policy. Well, in 23, you're now in the 24 election cycle. So everything is staging. So the thing we know for sure is more and more activity will be at the state level rather than the federal level. Uh, States have wide discretion in a lot of the things they do. And that's where you're going to see a lot of things play out, like will Medicaid waivers integrate more aggressively behavioral health and physical medicine and things like that. It's very popular in D.C. to bang the gavel for price transparency, whether it's drug prices, hospital prices, health plan prices. So that's great campaigning. That's great rhetoric. The substance of price transparency and its impact on the market will not be seen for three or four or five more years because we still know that even in the states that have had price transparency, like California and others, nobody paid attention. And we've had rules in some states about uh, posting your charge master, which is what most did. So we have to create a mechanism whereby transparency translates to a decision. When Joe Sixpack knows they have to pay attention to this stuff, and what we know in the system is sticks work better than carrots. We can kind of incentivize people to do this or that. No big deal. If we really put sticks around it, punish inappropriate behavior, you'll see that happen. You can't do that politically, right? So I think that's in the 20 five and six timeline. All I'm thinking over the next two years in the 118th Congress is the Senate is democratically controlled, the House Republican control. So the Senate is a buffer against the House, which has a very thin margin. But I don't think a lot will get done. But on the Senate side, you'll have appointments and confirmations which they will still control in the courts uh, and in the major departments. So that'll be what you watch. And those uh, appointments, like Bernie Sanders is going to chair the HELP Committee. This is going to elevate the discussion about the health system because Democrats pay more attention to health care than Republicans. So other than that, I don't know. It'll be fun to watch. Thank you so much, Paul, for sharing your perspective with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts.
Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures.